Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. The podcast where we do things excellently. We're talking about chapter 31 of Of Human Bondage. I need another recap. Sorry. Philip is coming back to England. Yay. And the gifts they gave each other at the end. Any insight? Swims to the mum fishy. Uh, has provided the insight. Der Trompeter von Sackingen, the trumpet of Sackingen, is an opera in a prologue and three acts by Victor Nesler. The German libretto was by Rudolf Bunge, based on the epic poem Der Trompeter von Sackingen by Joseph Victor von Schuffel. Uh, setting 17th century Heidelberg and Sackingen after the Thirty Years' War, the trumpeter Warren loves. Maria, the daughter of the Baron, but her father and mother want her to marry the cowardly Damien, when to prove himself a hero and is opportunely discovered to be of noble birth, so all ends happily. William Morris was a British textile designer, poet, novelist, translator, and social activist associated with the British arts and crafts movement. He was a major contributor to the revival of traditional British textile arts and methods of production. His literary contributions helped to establish the modern fantasy genre, while he helped win acceptance of socialism in Fin de Sicile, Great Britain. Starfall reminds us of that final line. Very wisely, neither of them ever read the other's present. Each one gave the other what the giver would like to read instead of what the recipient might enjoy. Swim said the mum fishy also gave us this recap. Haywood is off to Italy after weeks of delay because he can't just can't bear all the Teutonic merrymaking over Christmas. Ah, oh, I thought he was going to England. Apparently he's going to Italy. By way of England, by way of Italy, maybe. It appears that Philip is glad he's going because he is, my words, all over Haywood's pretensions. I think Philip has outgrown him. Haywood writes to Philip and apparently... He is a very good letter writer and takes time over it. This reads to me like M saved his lover's letters. There is a suggestion that Haywood is sending the same letter to several people. The letters make Philip feel he's, his life is drab and humdrum today. Haywood would be all over the social media sites carefully curating how wonderful his life is. Poor Philip, he doesn't have the money to go gallivanting around like Haywood. However, it's obvious that Philip is truly intellectual best thing for Philip was Haywood to have left. 19-year-old Philip has taken all he can from his German experience and is ready to go back to England. He still has a lot of growing up to do. Edgy angst and social awkwardness is still very much present. (laughs) Still very much present. 19 is an acceptable age to still have a bit of edgy angst and social awkwardness, I think. Um, I think that fades... I think if, you, if you've still got it as you approach 30, then, you, then you're then uh, you're in big trouble. But, you know, early 20s, I'll let you get away with it. <laughs> Let's read chapter 32. Um, well, there's just the loudest traffic in the world outside my house right now. It might be because I've got my front door open, actually, which is making the traffic sound louder. That could be it. Anyway, sorry about that. Chapter 32 goes like this. Philip was surprised when he saw his uncle and aunt. He had never noticed before that they were quite old people. The vicar received him with his usual not 
unamiable indifference. He was a little stouter, a little bolder, a little greyer. Philip saw how insignificant he was. His face was weak and self-indulgent. Aunt Louisa took him in her arms and kissed him, and tears of happiness flowed down her cheeks. Philip was touched and embarrassed. He had not known with what a hungry love she cared for him. Oh, the time has seemed long since you've been away, Philip, she cried. She stroked his hands and looked into his face with glad eyes. You've grown, you're quite a man now. There was a very small moustache on his upper lip. He had bought a razor and now and then, with infinite care, shaved the down of his smooth chin. We've been so lonely without you. And then shyly, with a little break in her voice, she asked, You are glad to come back to your home, aren't you? Yes, rather. She was so thin that she seemed almost transparent. The arms she put around his neck were frail bones that reminded you of chicken bones, and her faded face was oh so wrinkled. The grey curls which she still wore in the fashion of her youth gave her a queer pathetic look, and her little withered body was like an autumn leaf you felt it might be blown away by the first sharp wind. Philip realised that they had done with life, these two quiet little people. They belonged to a past generation, and they were waiting there patiently, rather stupidly, for death. And he, in his vigour and his youth, thirsting for excitement and adventure, was appalled at the waste. They had done nothing, and when they went, it would be just as if they had never been. He felt a great pity for Aunt Louisa, and he loved her suddenly because she loved him. Then Miss Wilkinson, who had kept discreetly out of the way till the Careys had had a chance of welcoming their nephew, came into the room. This is Miss Wilkinson, Philip, she said, said Mrs. Carey. The prodigal has returned, she said, holding out her hand. I have brought a rose for the prodigal's buttonhole. <laughs> That's buttonhole. It sounded weird when I said it. Buttonhole. <laughs> With a gay smile, she pinned to Philip's coat the flower she had picked in the garden. She blushed and felt foolish. He knew that Miss Wilkinson was the daughter of his uncle William's last rector, and he had a wide acquaintance with the daughters of clergymen. They wore ill-cut clothes and stout boots. They were generally dressed in black, for in Philip's early years at Blackstable, homespuns had not reached East Anglia, and the ladies of the clergy did not favour colours. Their hair was done very untidily, and they smelt aggressively of starched linen. They considered the feminine graces unbecoming, and looked the same whether they were young or old. They bore their religion arrogantly. The closeness of their connection with the church made them adopt a slightly dictatorial attitude to the rest of mankind. Miss Wilkinson was very different. She wore a white muslin gown stamped with little gay bunches of flowers and pointed high heel shoes with open-work stockings. To Philip's inexperience, it seemed that she was wonderfully dressed. He did not see that her frock was cheap and showy. Her hair was elaborately dressed, with a neat curl in the middle of her forehead. It was very black, shiny and hard, and it looked as though it could never be in the least disarranged. She had large black eyes, and her nose was slightly aquiline. In profile, she had somewhat the look of a bird of prey, but full face, she was prepossessing. She smiled a great deal, and her mouth was large, and when she smiled, she tried to hide her teeth, which were big and rather yellow, 
But what embarrassed Philip most was that she was heavily powdered. He had very strict views on feminine behaviour and did not think a lady ever powdered. But of course, Miss Wilkinson was a lady because she was a clergyman's daughter and a clergyman was a gentleman. Philip made up his mind to dislike her thoroughly. She spoke with a slight French accent and he did not know why she should since she had been born and bred in the heart of England. He thought her smile affected and the coy sprightliness of her manner irritated him. For two or three days he remained silent and hostile, but Miss Wilkinson apparently did not notice it. She was very affable. She addressed her conversation almost exclusively to him, and there was something flattering in the way she appealed constantly to his sane judgment. She made him laugh, too, and Philip could never resist people who amused him. He had a gift now and then of saying neat things, and it was pleasant to have an appreciative listener. Neither the vicar nor Mrs. Carey had a sense of humour, and they never laughed at anything he said. As he grew used to Miss Wilkinson, and his shyness left him, he began to like her better. He found the French accent picturesque, and at a garden party which the doctor gave, she was very much better dressed than anyone else. She wore a blue foulard with large white spots, and Philip was tickled at the sensation it caused. I'm certain they think you're no better than you should be, he told her, laughing. It's the dream of my life to be taken for an abandoned hussy, she answered. One day when Miss Wilkinson was in her room, he asked Aunt Louisa how old she was. Oh, my dear, you should never ask a lady's age, but she's certainly too old for you to marry. The vicar gave his slow, obese smile. She's no chicken, Louisa, he said. She was nearly grown up when we were in Lincolnshire, and that was twenty years ago. She wore a pigtail hanging down her back. Down her back. She may not have been more than ten, said Philip. She was older than that, said Aunt Louisa. I think she was nearly twenty, said the vicar. Oh no, William, sixteen or seventeen at the outside. That would make her well over thirty, said Philip. At that moment, Miss Wilkinson tripped downstairs, singing a song by Benjamin Goddard. She put, had put her hat on, for she and Philip were going for a walk, and she held out her hand for him to button her glove. He did it awkwardly. He felt embarrassed, but gallant. Conversation went easily between them now, and as they strolled along, they talked of all manner of things. She told Philip about Berlin, and he told her of his first, of his, sorry, he told her of his year in Heidelberg. As he spoke, things which had appeared of no importance gained a new interest. He described the people at Frau Erlen's house, and to the conversations between Hayward and Weeks, which at the time seemed so significant, he gave a little twist so that they looked absurd. He was flattered at Miss Wilkinson's laughter. I'm quite frightened of you, she said. You're so sarcastic. Then she asked him, playfully, whether he had not had any love affairs at Heidelberg. Without thinking, he frankly answered that he had not, but she refused to believe him. How secretive you are, she said. At your age, is it likely? He blushed and laughed. You want to know too much, he said. Ah, I thought so, she laughed triumphantly. Look at him blushing. He was pleased that she should think he had been a sad dog, and he changed the conversation so as to make her believe he had all sorts of romantic things to conceal. He was angry with himself that he had not. There had been no opportunity. Miss Wilkinson was dissatisfied with her lot. She resented having to earn her living, and told Philip a long story of an uncle and her mother's who had been expected to leave her a fortune 
but he had married his cook and changed his will. She hinted at the luxury of her home and compared her life to Lincolnshire, with horses to ride and carriages to drive in, with the mean dependence of her present state. Philip was a little puzzled when he mentioned this afterwards to Aunt Louisa, and she told him that when she knew the Wilkinsons, they had never had anything more than a pony and a dog cart. Aunt Louisa had heard of the rich uncle, but as he was married and had children before Emily was born, she could never have had much hope of inheriting his fortune. Miss Wilkinson had a little good to, had little good to say of Berlin, where she was now in a situation. She complained of the vulgarity of German life and compared it bitterly with the brilliance of Paris, where she had spent a number of years. She did not say how many. She had been governess in the family of a fashionable portrait painter who had married a Jewish wife of means, and in their house she had met many distinguished people. She dazzled Philip with their names. Actors from the comedy Francois had come to the house frequently, and Coquelin, sitting next to her at dinner, had told her he had never met a foreigner who spoke such perfect French. Alphonse Dordet had also come, and he had given her a copy of Sopho. He had promised to write her name in it, but she had forgotten to remind him. She treasured the volume, nonetheless, and she would lend it to Philip. Then there was Maupassant. Miss Wilkinson, with a rippling laugh, looked at Philip knowingly. What a man, but what a writer. Hayward had talked of Maupassant, and his reputation was not unknown to Philip. Did he make love to you? he asked. The words seemed to stick funnily in his throat, but he asked them nevertheless. He liked Miss Wilkinson very much now and was thrilled by her conversation, And but he could not imagine anyone making love to her. What a question, she cried. Poor guy. He made love to every woman he met. It was a habit that he could not break himself of. She sighed a little and seemed to look back tenderly on the past. He was a charming man, she murmured. A greater experience than Phillips would have guessed from these words the probabilities of the encounter. A distinguished writer invited to luncheon and family, the governess coming in sedately with the two tall girls she was teaching the introduction, Notre Miss Anglaise, Mademoiselle, and the luncheon during which Miss Anglaise sat silent while the distinguished writer talked to his host and hostess, but to Philip her words called up much more romantic fancies. Do tell me about him, he said excitedly. There's nothing to tell, she said truthfully, but in such a manner as to convey that three volumes would scarcely have contained the lurid facts. You mustn't be curious. She began to talk of Paris. She loved the boulevards and the boys. There was grace in every street, and the trees in the Champs Elysees had a distinction which trees had not elsewhere. They were sitting on a stile now by the high road, and Miss Wilkinson looked with disdain upon the stately elms in front of them and the theatres. The plays were brilliant, and the acting was incomparable. She often went with Madame Foyot, the mother of the girls she was educating when she was trying on clothes. Oh, what a misery to be poor, she cried. It's beautiful things. It's only in Paris they know how to dress, and not to be able to afford them. Poor Madame Foyot, she had no figure. Sometimes the dressmaker used to whisper to me, Ah, mademoiselle, if she only had your figure. Philip noticed then that Miss Wilkinson had a robust form and was proud of it. Men are so stupid in England. 
They only think of the face. The French, who are a nation of lovers, know how much more important the figure is. Philip had never thought of such things before, but he observed now that Miss Wilkinson's ankles were thick and ungainly. He withdrew his eyes quickly. You should go to France. Why don't you go to Paris for a year? You would learn French, and it would deny us you. What is that? asked Philip. She laughed slyly. You must look it up in the dictionary. Englishmen do not know how to treat women. They are so shy. Shyness is ridiculous in a man. They don't know how to make love. They can't even tell a woman she is charming without looking foolish. Philip felt himself absurd. Miss Wilkinson evidently expected him to behave very differently, and he would have been delighted to say gallant and witty things, but they never occurred to him. And when they did, he was too much afraid of making a fool of himself to say them. Oh, I love Paris, sighed Miss Wilkinson, but I had to go to Berlin. I was with the Foyots till the girls married, and then I could get nothing to do, and I had the chance of this post in Berlin. They are relations of Madame Foyot, and I accepted. I had a tiny apartment in the Rue Breeder on the Cinquimi. It wasn't at all respectable. You know about the Rue Breeder, says Darms, you know. Philip nodded, not knowing at all what she meant. But vaguely suspecting and anxious, she should not think him too ignorant. But I didn't care. Je suis libre ne pas. She was very fond of speaking French, which indeed she spoke well. Once I had such a curious adventure there. She paused a little and Philip pressed her to tell. You wouldn't tell me yours in Heidelberg, she said. They were so unadventurous, he retorted. I don't know what Mrs. Carey would say if she knew the sorts of things we talked about together. You don't imagine I shall tell her? Will you promise? When he had done this, she told him how an art student who had a room on the floor above her, but she interrupted herself. Why don't you go in for art? You paint so prettily. Not well enough for that. That is for others to judge. Jeremia Cornet, and I believe you have the making of a great artist. Can't you see Uncle William's face if I suddenly told him I wanted to go to Paris and study art? You are your own master, aren't you? You're trying to put me off. Please go on with the story. Miss Wilkinson, with a little laugh, went on. The art student had passed her several times on the stairs, and she had paid no particular attention. She saw that he had fine eyes, and he took off his hat very politely, and one day she found a letter slipped under her door. It was from him. He told her that he had adored her for months, and that he waited about the stairs for her to pass. Oh, it was a charming letter. Of course, she did not reply, but what woman could help being flattered. And next day there was another letter. It was wonderful, passionate and touching. When next she met him on the stairs, she did not know which way to look, and every day the letters came, and now he begged her to see him. He said he would come in the evening, and she did not know what to do. Of course it was impossible, and he might ring and ring, but she would never open the door, and then, while she was waiting for the tinkling of the bell, all nerves... Suddenly he stood before her. She had forgotten to shut the door when she came in. C'était un fatalite. And what happened then? asked Philip. That is the end of the story, she replied with a ripple of laughter. Philip was silent for a moment. His heart beat quickly and the strange emotions seemed to be hustling one another in his heart. He saw the dark staircase and the chance meetings and he admired the boldness of the letters. Oh, he would never have dared to do, to do that. And then the silent, almost mysterious entrance, it seemed to him the very soul of romance. What was he like? Oh, he was handsome. Chaumont Gosson. Do you know him still? 
Philip felt a slight feeling of irritation as he asked this. He treated me abominably. Men are always the same. You're heartless, all of you. I don't know about that, said Philip, not without embarrassment. Let us go home, said Miss Wilkinson. All right, there we go. There's that chapter done. Have your say over at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.